Let's go to John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. And today we're looking at the fifth installment in our study of John's gospel. I'm going to ask everyone to take your Bibles with me. Find John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. And there should be several groups of people here today. Number one, there should be those who are life group leaders. You should be taking notes today so you can have something to discuss with your group. Whether you write them down, put them in your phone, have some, somewhere to write them down so you can dialogue with your group a little better on Wednesday. The second group is those who are members of a life group. Make sure you write down some questions, maybe something you didn't understand, underline, highlight, circle words that didn't make sense to you the first time. And the third group of people is those who are really just enjoying this series. Um, and I'm going to ask a question. How many of you are enjoying kind of going through this verse by verse, learning, see what Jesus is up to? If that's you, raise your hand. Okay, it's not just me. Perfect. Today we're looking at the fifth installment of John's Gospel, and the title of the message is, Jesus Cleanses the Temple. So why don't we find it right there where you are, why don't we just pray, then we'll read and get into it all together. So uh, let me pray for our time together. Father God, please speak to us through your word. Uh, Please Lord, illuminate the scriptures, please help us to understand the real point of this message today. And Lord, thank you for coming to the earth, for being like one of us, for being tempted like we are, for defeating temptation the way some of us do not do, and ultimately for dying on the cross to take the punishment for our sins. And thank you, Jesus, for rising on the third day to give us eternal life for all who believe. Lord, today as we study the word and then prepare to take of your supper, we ask you that you would please cleanse our hearts, that you would purge from within us any evil thoughts, Any sin that we've done with our hands, please cleanse us. Please make us righteous before you because of the merits of Jesus. Lord, please, we ask you all of this in Jesus' good name. Amen. So the title of my message is this, Jesus Cleanses the Temple. And uh, as we look at this story, we need to remember where we came from, right? We see John the Baptist, how was he related to Jesus? You remember? He was a cousin, a distant relative, or a close relative of Jesus. He introduces Jesus to us. He pulls back the veil and he says, this is the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. Then we see John the Baptist hand over, so to speak, his disciples to Jesus. Remember, it was a family ministry. We saw some of the first disciples. You remember who they were? Andrew, Peter, who else? What's that? John, Nathaniel, and Philip. And we see this little group of True believers, they were with John, so they, you know, they, they heard the, the good news of there's salvation coming. And then they followed Jesus. And we saw last week that Jesus and his disciples were invited where? To a wedding. What was the name of the city? Do you remember? Cana of Galilee. Big city, little city. Little village. Very small. After leaving this city, we see the next steps of Jesus' ministry, and it's him making his way to the temple. So here's the question. What is the temple? Well, in ancient times, the temple was the physical meeting place between God and human beings. It was a place that was constructed, uh, first of all, designed by King David. He didn't get to build it. His his son Solomon, he built the temple. It was massive. It was an enormous uh, construction. And it was a building where the priests would come in. God's people would come with their sacrifices, where they would offer up the animals for their sins. The priest would go into the very back of the temple once a year and be in the presence of God. 
which would manifest itself as a cloud. And this was the only designated meeting place between God and man. It was a physical place. Around the time of Jesus, the first original temple was not there. It had been destroyed. And so what we see here is the second temple. The second temple was built by a man named King Herod. He was not a Jewish man, but he was the ruler of the Jews. He was actually an Edomite, one of not God's people. And he built this massive temple. His name was Herod the Great. And what we see here is the second instance in the Bible where Jesus enters the temple. The first one being when he was a little baby. It was a custom of them taking Jewish babies on the eighth day to go present them before the temple to be circumcised and to show this baby, firstborn, belongs to God. We see that in one of the other Gospels. Here, the second time that he goes into the temple is when he was 12 years old. What did Jesus do when he was 12 years old? He was teaching the teachers in the temple. The Son of God became a, a man, became a baby, first of all. A little boy grew up to be 12 years old. And he's there teaching, dialoguing with the Bible teachers, correcting them, instructing them. And now we see perhaps the third time that he goes into the temple. And why don't we go ahead and read it. John 2, 13 and 14. It says this, The Jewish Passover was near. And so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. So let's talk about this first point, zeal for God's house. And we see a couple things here. We see the Jewish Passover. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about what the Passover was. It was the day where God liberated the people of Israel from bondage in Egypt. And we saw that the way God distinguished who was his people and who was not was by telling the, Jew, the Jewish people, offer up this perfect spotless animal, kill it, eat the meat, and use the blood to cover the posts of the door of your house. When the angel of death comes, he'll pass over your house, and you'll know that you're God's people. He won't kill your firstborn. He won't let the plagues of God touch you. And we saw that was the first Passover. That became like the independence, they so to speak, of the Jewish people. So once a year, everybody would come back to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. They would go into the temple. In a city of about Three, four hundred thousand people would turn into a massive city of about 2.7 million people. That's what the historians say. Think about it. Brownsville, Texas, about 200,000 people. All of a sudden, everyone comes to Brownsville, and you have over a million people here to worship God. That's what was happening here. And we see here that Jesus goes up to Jerusalem because it was a city on a hill, on a mountain, basically. And in the temple, he finds people doing something that was disgusting to God. They were selling oxen, sheep, doves, and there were also money changers there. So what happened there? If you were a worshiper of God who didn't live in Jerusalem, let's say you lived in Ethiopia, you had to travel many, many miles, hundreds of miles in the desert to get to the temple. And you were supposed to bring your sacrifice. So you would bring your little animal that you raised all year. And for a lot of people, that was too much work. And I want us to examine ourselves. Does it ever feel like it's too much work to get up, come to church, have my physical Bible in my hand? It's too much work to, let's say here, to practice the songs. Oh, it's, it's too much work. That it's too much work to set up the cameras and the systems. It's too much work to come to life group. That's what these people thought. It's too much work to bring the sacrifices. 
So some of these people who were a little greedy in the temple, they said, we're going to do something. Rather than you bring your animals from home hundreds of miles, we're going to sell our own version of the animals here. You can just buy it here. But we're going to charge you double the price. And then you can offer your little sacrifice. There were also money changers in the temple. What was that? Let's say you lived in Ethiopia. You had Ethiopian money. It's no good in Israel. We need to do some exchange. Kind of like here with the peso, um, with the U.S. dollar, you would exchange it at Casa de Cambio, one of these exchange houses. And so what these people were doing is, you can exchange the money here, but we're going to charge you 10%. They were stealing from the worshipers of God. And they were doing something that God detested. They were turning religion into a way to make money. Do we see that nowadays? So let's talk about this. I'm going to share with you five worship acts that God rejects. Because God doesn't receive all worship. Did you know that? He doesn't receive all worship from everybody. There's some things that God rejects. And here's a couple of them. Number one, He rejects religion that is man-centered. He rejects religion that is about me as a human being. When you come to church, you should not come expecting, you know, Pastor Manny's going to preach today. I wonder what it says about me. We should come expecting, what does it say about God? What does it say about Him? And so God detests man-centered religion. The religion of your best life now. Pastor Manny, we want to hear a sermon on five tips of how to make good money. Now, does the Bible talk about how to manage finances? Yes. Does the Bible talk about how to have a godly marriage? Of course. But if the heart of a Bible story is somehow about you, you've missed the mark. Because it's not man-centered religion. Number two, what's the worship that God rejects? Religion that is compromising. Often uh, mega churches get ridiculed for this, and sometimes smaller churches should also examine themselves. But they say at mega churches, we're going to play some of the songs that you hear on the radio to make you feel welcome. So I saw a church that for Easter, they played uh, Highway to Hell by ACDC. That was, the, that was the worship service. Some of you have never heard that. I grew up listening to that music. I was not a Christian. I would not want to hear that in from a worship band. But the, the, the thinking behind it was, we need to make people feel comfortable so when they come here, we play the same songs that they already listened to. That's compromising faith. And God rejects compromise. The Bible tells us, what does the devil have to do with God? It doesn't mix. Number three, God rejects hypocritical worship. We should all know this. This is nothing new. God rejects worship that is hypocritical. I'll give you an example. Jesus gave this story and he said, if you're about to give your offering at the altar, but you remember that someone has something against you, it's better for you to leave the offering there, go fix the problem, and then come back, and then God will receive your worship. Otherwise, he won't. And this is one of the sad parts here. A lot of people believe some of this prosperity gospel stuff about sow your seed, you know, plant your 1144 seed because we took Isaiah out of context and now we came up with some number. Give $1,144. And then they expect things from God. And God would say, no, it's hypocritical. It's about you, about me. Number four, God rejects the ignoring of his boundaries. Have you ever heard this? Brother, don't put God in a box. Have you ever heard that before? Hermano, no limites a Dios. Don't limit God. This is usually said by people who love to do very, very explosive, charismatic type worship. 
So they'll say things like, don't put boundaries on God. Let me tell you something. God puts boundaries on himself. You don't believe me? He calls himself father and not mother. He says in the Old Testament, offer me this kind of burnt incense, but not this kind. God limits himself. And when we ignore his boundaries, God doesn't like it. So what does that look like, for example, in worship, when you have a woman pastor? We have a woman preacher. God has specifically delineated in 1 Timothy, a pastor is supposed to be the husband of one wife. How can a woman be the husband of one wife? He put those boundaries, not us, not us Baptists, not Logos. He set those boundaries. And number five, God rejects worship that is always looking for something new. Here's an example. Paul goes to the city of Athens in Greece. He's preaching the gospel to all of the Athenian uh, philosophers there. And he goes and he preaches the gospel. And then he says something kind of weird in Acts. It says, because these Greeks are always looking for something new to talk about. If you ever hear this of, we want a new anointing. We want a new revelation. God rejects that. God is not about new all the time regarding worship. He's about establishing traditions and then following them the way he has set them in the Bible. Pastor, what are you talking about? The reason that the Bible is closed and nobody's writing more books of the Bible is because God said, that's it. We're finished. Read it. You're living on borrowed time. We live on something called the time of grace. We don't know when he's coming back. But we don't need to do new things. We just follow what's already written. And what we see here in this passage is that they were looking for something new. It's too hard to offer to God. So let's find a new way to offer to God. Just prepare the animals there and we'll buy them from you. Now, let's continue in the text there. In John 2, 15 through 17, I'm going to ask you to read with me. And a lot of guys really love this passage, especially men. John 2, 15 through 17, go ahead and read it with me nice and loud. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is the Jesus flipping over tables verse. And some guys say, yeah, I'm just like Jesus. You're not Jesus. <laughs> I'm going to whip him, Pastor Manny, like Jesus did. You're not Jesus. <laughs> What's happening here? Jesus is God in human form. He goes into the temple and sees corruption, hypocrisy, sin. And what, he, what does he start doing? He starts tearing everything down. What would that look like nowadays? It would be Jesus walking into the mega church where it's all about Jesus, but then they have the stage with spotlights and smoke coming out and the worship leader's face on the big screen. What would Jesus do? He would start unplugging things, taking that cord and whipping people to get out of here. That's what that would look like. It's not about... The people, it's about Jesus. So we see a story that we don't get told in Sunday school as little kids. Jesus flipped over tables? Mom, I'm biblical. Flip over that table, right? We don't get told that one in Sunday school. But Jesus does this. Question, did Jesus sin by doing this? No. He's God. He was actually limiting himself from what he could have done. In the Old Testament... What does, Jesus, what does God do when he has cities that are full of sin who won't repent? What does God do in the Old Testament? 
destroys them. Sodom and Gomorrah, what did he do? Fire rained down. The time of Noah, what happened there? The flood. So then you see Jesus entering the temple, which is supposed to be his house. He's God. And he flips over tables, kicks all the animals out, spills the money on the floor. Again, we can't really grasp this. But let me tell you what that would have looked like. Again, a million people pouring into the temple. There would have been thousands of people inside of that temple at the time. Not maybe 20, 30 like we see in the movies. There would have been thousands of people there. And he does this miraculous thing. He whips them and none of them retaliate because they knew that they were wrong. What would, have, what would it have taken for them to stop Jesus? Just a couple big guys. Jesus, that's enough. Calm down. He kicks everyone out of the temple because they were perverting the truth. He had zeal for God's house. We see him saying this, get these things out of here. He was purifying false worship. We should pray for this. God, purify me from any false form of worship. That little five-second prayer, Jesus, thank you for the food, amen. That very repetitive prayer, Dios, gracias, 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 amen. Have you heard people pray? And you're like, it always sounds the same. They're always saying the same things. It's like it's even prepared or practiced. Jesus came and purified the worship in that temple. And he said, my father's house is not a marketplace. We don't use church to make money. Something my finance office uh, lady, Mana Diane, something she always tells me is, Manny, you guys are doing great financially, but remember, you're not a bank. The money's supposed to go out. Use it. And I always feel a little guilty, you know, like, oh, we don't want to waste all the money. What if we need to go rent a building tomorrow? We need to be wise with it. But she's like, it's okay. We're not a bank. Use it. That's what the money's for. He says it's not a marketplace. And lastly, he quotes Psalm 69 that says this, zeal for your house will consume me. What does this mean for us as Christians? The things that God loves, we love. And the things that God hates, we hate. Does God hate anything? Oh yeah, Old Testament tells us there's six, even seven things that God hates. And what is one of those? Lips that lie. People that cause division. God hates that. Do we hate the things that God hates? Injustice. The slaughter of babies. I was telling my wife, you know, we went to the parades and just to see what's going on, just, you know. And there's a lot of new people coming into the city. And a lot of them lean left politically. And what they're doing is they're bringing their voting ideologies into Brownsville. And they're turning, they want to turn Texas into a blue state. What is a blue state, a Democrat state? What do Democrats stand for publicly and out loud? Abortion, higher taxes, etc. We we're not going to debate politics. This is just the facts. So I was telling her, we, we're very blessed in Texas that we don't pay, uh, we pay uh, federal income tax. How many of you already did your taxes? Okay, raise your hand if you did your taxes. I want to see your tithe, your tithe, your tithe. Your, no, I'm just I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. So we pay federal income tax. The rate might be a little different. In California, for example, they pay, on top of that, a state income tax. So you do your taxes with the federal government and then also with the state of California. In Texas, we don't have that. We have something called the sales tax. So you just do the 8.25% on every sale. That's your taxes. 
And what a lot of these people want to do is they want to impose a state income tax here. What are we talking about here? They want to turn this into a market. They want to rip off people. God detests these things. God hates when people are ripped off, when injustice is done, when lies are told, when babies are slaughtered in the womb. He hates all of this, and we should too. Zeal for your house will consume, he says Jesus, as he's chasing people out of the temple. And if we saw the things that God rejects, what are the things that God accepts? Well, number one, when worship is God-centered. We're very picky with the songs we sing here. We go over them twice, see the lyrics, are they good or not? We want it to be about God. If you sing a worship song that says the word I am, I am, I am 50 times, and it says he is, he is two or three times, it's not a worship song. Worship that God accepts is God-centered. When we talk about the Father, when we talk about the Son, when we talk about the Holy Spirit. Number two, worship that God accepts is a living sacrifice. You are a living sacrifice. What does that mean? You're supposed to reject what your flesh desires. What What does the flesh desire? What does our old nature desire? Sexual sin? Letting go of any inhibitions, any laws that govern us, losing control. And the Bible tells us, don't let yourself be mastered by this stuff. Be sober-minded. You govern yourself. And it says, be a living sacrifice. Like Romans 12 tells us, by renewing your mind. This is God's acceptable worship. Number three, the worship that God accepts is this, sincere and contrite. I'm going to teach you a new word today. Say it with me, contrite. One, two, three, contrite. What is the word contrite? It's when you realize how broken you are and you're honest with God and you say, God, please forgive me. God loves that contrite heart. God wants a sincere worship, not a hypocritical worship. The Bible tells us this, those of you who think you are rich, you should mourn over your sin. If you think you have a good life here in your existence here on earth, you should really examine yourself. If you say everything's going well, I have nothing to cry about, I have nothing to worry about, me and God are like this, we're homeboys, you have a problem. God is my buddy. No, God is God. God is my little G God. No, He's not. He's big G God. It says, the Bible tells us, mourn over your sin. When is the last time you really got in prayer with God and you cried over your sin? Some of you have never mourned over your sin. Some of you are very hard-hearted. Say, I have nothing to repent of. I have nothing to ask for forgiveness of. Please, examine your heart, my friend. Mourn over your sin. God accepts that as worship. I'll tell you this, God accepts that more than your money. And if this makes you a little upset, and you say, Pastor Manny, leave me alone. I'm not going to give any more offerings. Take them. Take your offerings. It's not necessary. What God wants more than your money is you. What is other worship that God accepts? Respecting His boundaries, what we talked about. Respecting His Word. Not having chaos, but order. 
Another example, like uh, what it says about tongues, doing it the right way. Respecting his boundaries. And number five, what is a worship that God accepts? Being rooted in scripture. If you want to know what a church looks like, don't go to the church seminars. For those of you guys who want to get into ministry, don't go to a million conferences. Let me save you time and energy. Those are guys trying to get together their best human ideas for what a church is. We have the outline for what a church is right here. Go to Acts chapter 2 and read it. We need to be rooted in Scripture. Your life needs to be rooted in the Bible. You need to know what God's perfect will is. And why do I get a little uh, energetic about this? Because I feel the same passion, zeal. Do you love the things of God? Or are they something to check off your list for Sunday? I'll tell you this. Every Christian should be zealous about pursuing righteousness, truth, obedience, and holiness. But he will find these when he pursues Christ. You want to find all these things? Pursue Christ first. You want to be a husband that loves his wife? Pursue Jesus first. You want to be a wife that serves and loves her husband? Don't go to a wife's seminar. Don't go to a wife's training day. Go to Jesus. Pursue him. And everything else will follow. So we see this zeal that God had. He kicked everyone out of the temple. And number two, let's see this. Jesus is a greater temple. John 2, 18 through 22. Why don't we read it all together? So the Jews replied to him, What sign will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, This temple took 46 years to build, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement that Jesus had made. So we see these guys who are sign chasers, miracle chasers. They come to Jesus, and those are the ones he was always fighting with. And they say, I better show us a miracle, Jesus. Prove that you're God. Show us a sign. They didn't want to believe the signs. Even if he would have done a miracle, they wouldn't have believed it. Some of us are that hard-headed sometimes. Even if he answers, I need more proof. And let me encourage you with this. If you ever fall into that, just turn back. Some of us get into that rut sometimes. God, show me. I don't believe it until you show me. Have a simple faith. You know what the Bible says? Have a childlike faith. You know what a childlike faith is? A child just believes whatever his mom tells him. Is that not true with Gali? You say snack, she knows she's getting a snack. And then she's kind of expecting it. Like, ma, where's the snack? <laughs> the Bible tells us to have a childlike faith. Do you believe God just at His word? Or do we need all these signs to prove Him right? Jesus says this about the temple. He says, you destroy this temple and I'll raise it up on the third day. And as we know, He wasn't talking about a building. The temple that we see here, it's not there anymore. It was destroyed in 70 AD. It took 46 years to build. Toile faltaba another 20 years to finish. As soon as they almost finished, it got burned to the ground. That temple's not there anymore. If you see a picture of Jerusalem, and I think we had shared a picture of the temple at the very beginning, but if you share a picture of Jerusalem, you just see the Dome of the Rock of the Muslims. You don't see the temple anymore. It's gone. 2,000 years, they haven't been able to rebuild it. So Jesus obviously wasn't talking about that temple. He was talking about His body as a temple. 
Because again, what's the definition of the temple? The meeting place between God and man. And Jesus is that meeting place between God and man. Here's five things Jesus does as our greater temple. And we need to start thinking like this. When we see something in the Old Testament, again, it should not be, how do I fit into this? It should be, what is this telling me about Jesus? So when you see Noah in the flood, you see Jesus is the ark. Anyone who puts his faith in him is safe. When you see Abraham, the father of the faith, you should think Jesus is that faith. So we see the temple. What is that telling us? Well, Jesus is our greater temple, and this is what he does. He serves as our great high priest. In those times, once a year, the high priest would go into the very back of the temple. Only he was allowed to go there once a year. And how would he go? They would tie a rope around him with bells. And he would walk into the very back. It was called the Holy of Holies. And if he had walked into the back of the temple with any sin that he had just committed without repenting, God would kill him. So, let's say you and I were the guys outside helping the priest. If we hear the little bells ringling, uh, ringing back there, then we know he's alive. But if all of a sudden you stop hearing the bells, the guy's dead. Let's pull the rope and get him out of here. He must have made God very mad. Well, Jesus is a better high priest. And what does God do as our high priest? He takes God on one hand, He takes man on the other hand, and He puts us together. That's what He does as our high priest. He intercedes for us. Every time you accumulate a record of wrong, He steps in the way and He says, I already paid for that. He's our attorney, so to speak. Our great high priest. Number two, what else does He do as our greater temple? He gives us living water. How many of you are thirsty right now? You wish you could get a drink. I see a couple of you like fidgeting a little bit. You're like, I need some water. I'm going to make you very mad right now. This is my second sermon, so please have patience. He gives us living water. <laughs> and you know what this did right now? It's satisfied for a little bit. I'm going to get thirsty again later. Jesus said that he's the living water. You'll never thirst again. What was he talking about? Eternal life, abundance, not money, a life that never ends, a life that is always satisfying. Could you imagine living that life? A life where you never want anything, a life where you never need anything. As our high priest, he gives us living water, meaning we'll have eternal life, not death, eternal joy, not sadness, eternal peace, not anxiety. I know a lot of people who suffer from anxiety. And yes, it is a medical condition. But he gives us living water. Number, two, number three, as our perfect temple, he provides the perfect sacrifice. Here's the thing about the physical temple. You had to keep coming back every year, bringing a new animal, and hopefully getting forgiven again. As the perfect sacrifice, it's one and done. He's already paid it all. Number four, he grants us entrance into the holy place of God. Again, think of the temple. There was a curtain you couldn't pass, and that was called the Holy of Holies. What was inside that part of the temple? You would see something called the Ark of the Covenant, a big box covered in gold where inside were the Ten Commandments and a couple other things there. And nobody was allowed to go in there except the priest. And what happens when Jesus is crucified? The Bible tells us the veil was torn from top to bottom. Symbolically, God says, 
Everyone's welcome into the presence of God now. Everybody. I like what Juan said at the beginning. There's nothing special about this building. It's just a building. If for whatever reason we got kicked out tomorrow, we had to go meet under a tree, we're still the church of God. Because God allows us entrance into His presence. So that's why there's a song that I kind of don't like, and I'm going to bash on it. Uh, it's a song that says something about, uh, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Uh, flood the place, flood the atmosphere. What does that even mean? If the Holy Spirit lives in us, He's with us everywhere we go. It's not that you come to this place and, yeah, I'm, I'm going to church. My friend, you are the church. The Holy Spirit lives in you if you belong to Christ. So, Pastor Manny, do you hate that song? I don't hate it. I just would rather not sing it. Number five, as our great temple, He freely forgives. I heard this from a guy this week. He said, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. And I'm like, I feel for you, but you're wrong. If God forgives you, you're forgiven. Who are you to say God can't forgive? I said, Pastor Manny, please don't talk to me like that. No, he got a little bit sad. I said, brother, he forgave you. Why are you condemning yourself? You're not above God. If he sets you free, you are free. Walk in it. And a lot of us, we're stuck in a prison of our own making. God has forgiven us, so we walk in it. Stop condemning yourself. Who condemns you? God sets us free. I'll close this thought with this. To meet with God, my friends, we don't go to a holy place, but we go to a holy person. The holy person of Jesus is where God meets with humanity. We don't need a building anymore. You don't need to go to Israel, the holy land. Jesus is the holy man. You go to him. And let's go to the last part of this story here. So they told him, what sign do you show us? He said, destroy my temple, destroy my body, and I'll raise it up on the third day. He was talking about himself, that he would come back to life. John 2, 23-25. While he was in Jerusalem during that Passover festival, let's read it all together, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them, since he knew them all, and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. What happens here? After he kicks everyone out of the temple, some people start pouring back in, hundreds and then thousands. And what is he doing? He starts teaching. That has got to be the best Bible study you ever went to. You have the author of the Bible and the author of life in the temple that was supposed to be for God, teaching the Bible. And some of us say, if I would have been there, I would have believed. How presumptuous of you. You see, these people saw the signs, and it says there, they believed when they saw the miracles that he was doing. And you would say, great, there was a revival. There was an awakening. Thousands came to Christ. What was the response from Jesus? 24, he would not entrust himself to them. They didn't believe for salvation. They believed because they wanted more miracles. It's like the person who comes to church only when they need something. The person who comes only when they have problems. 
Is that you? Do you only come to God when you need something? It says they believed because they saw the signs, but he did not entrust himself because he knew them all. 25. He did not need anyone to testify about man. He himself knew what was in man. The same God who made you, he knows you. He knows what's in you. And so he didn't rejoice. Amen, we have a great revival. Let's start a new church. He said, I don't trust any of you. I kicked you out. You got sad. Now you're back in. But you haven't repented. So let's wrap up with this. Superficial religion. God knows our heart. And this is what superficial religion looks like. Number one, works-based religion. This is religions like the Jehovah's Witness, like the Mormon Church, like the Catholic system, of you trying to earn God's love. I'll do the sacraments. I'll do the rituals, God. Love me. Or, I've already done it, so I'm better than everyone else who hasn't done it. Works-based religion is an offense to God. It's superficial. It's, for example, the person who gives extra tithes. Pastor, I let you un poquito más. You know, don't talk about adultery anymore. Pastor, I gave a little extra. Please don't talk about materialism because I just got a brand new car and I barely got my wife to agree on it. Don't talk about that. Here's a, here's a couple extra ofrendas. Una ofrenda de amor, Pastor. Like, why do you say that? Because I've heard of stuff like this. This happens. The pulpit committee. You can't preach on that topic. It's offensive to the hermana and she's a big giver. My friend, if Elon Musk came in here, we would still be talking about adultery. He's the richest guy in the world. He's living in adultery. We would still preach about it. Works-based religion. Number two. Religion that is about the approval of other people. Is your faith just a way for you to please other people? When do we see this? When we see guys who are not Christians wanting to date Christian girls. That's a little example of that. Yeah, I'll go to church with you, babe. I'll sit with you in the sermon. Oh, Pastor Manny preached great, man. That was a good sermon. What was it about? I don't know, but the Spirit was there. I felt great. Superficial religion for the approval of others. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I love when... Uh, breaks my heart, but I love when Christian girls bring their non-Christian boyfriends sometimes because he's trying really hard to impress me, saying all the right things, and I'm just sitting there looking at him like, mm-hmm, oh, see, see, good. And then I ask a little probing question, and it's like, yeah, yeah, you got me. I used to hear this all the time when I was a youth pastor, that guys would go to church because there was hot girls. Superficial for the approval of others. You know what Jesus said to those who try to please other people with their religion? He said, woe to you. What, is a, what, is, what does woe to you mean? It would be something like, damn you. It would be something like, go to hell. And who did Jesus tell these things to? The religious people. The scribes, the Pharisees. The guys who checked off all the boxes, who went to seminary, read all the books. He said, go to hell, you scribes. Outside, you look all clean. Inside, you're full of death. He went after them. Read Matthew. I love Matthew. It's one of my favorite books. You see the side of Jesus, I know what he talks about. He says, woe to you because you clean the outside of the cup, but inside you're full of dirt. 
Woe to you because you go and make new converts. You take people from other churches and then you send them to hell. Woe to you for false religion. Number three, the last type of superficial religion is religion as a means of gain. What does that mean? As a way to make money. I'm going to go to church now because I want a meeting with the pastor. I got some projects he can invest in. I'm going to go to church now because I got bills and they're multiplying and I can't pay them. Uh, Pastor Manny, pay our bills. I'm going to become a preacher because I'm really bad at holding down a job and I know that uh, in church no one ever gets after the pastor. As a means of gain. As a way to make money. God detests this. Read with me, Matthew 15. I think, we have, I think we'll have it up there. Matthew 15, 8 through 9. Look at what Jesus said. Read it with me. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. Does God not know us? He says, you worship me with your lips. Oh, your hands are swaying. Oh, you're hitting all the right notes. But your heart is far from me. You worship me in vain. What does that mean? Nothing's going to happen. Service is over. Nothing happened. In vain. Brothers, sisters, friends, let's not worship God in vain. Let's not make a mockery of our God. Let's not play around with the things of God. God never, never took lightly His own name. Jesus is not a phrase you can throw around when you hit yourself on the pinky finger there. Oh, my G-O-D is not something to say because, oh, you're so funny and quirky. We honor God. We honor His name. We respect the Lord. We give Him His place. And we give Him sincere faith. What does that look like, sincere faith? Well, instead of earning God's love, we do good works because we have God's love. Good works as a fruit. Not to earn salvation, but out of gratitude. Number two, sincere faith looks like this. For the approval not of men, but the approval of God. Who do you live to please? I've heard some uh, romantic songs lately. Just because I was in that mood. I was like, oh, I love my wife. Let me hear some romantic music. Let me see if I can, you know, I'll tag her in this. I love you. I was thinking of you. And a lot of stuff that I hear, it's like, oh, I would die for you. Oh, I would jump in front of a train for you. They can't even text back. Oh, I would, I would do this for you. And it's like, who are you living to please? Are you living to please God or other people? When you go to work, you're not there to please the boss. You're there to please Jesus. When you go to school, you're not there to please a professor. You're not there to please your parents. You're there to please Jesus. If you're in a competitive area, sports, work, you're not there to please the competitors, to try to get them to like you or the scouts. You're there to please Jesus. We live to please Him. Sincere faith, lastly, not as a way of making money, but as having Christ as the reward. If the answer to this question, let me ask you this question. Why do you want to go to heaven? And if the answer is anything other than I want to be with Jesus, 
you have the wrong motive. If you say, I want to go to heaven because my grandma's up there. Wrong reason. I want to go to heaven because my dog's up there. No, he's not. He's in your backyard. Ask your parents. If you say, I want to go to heaven because there's no more suffering. Good reason, but not the best reason. If you say, I want to go to heaven because I want to be with my maker, with my God. I love my God. That's the right reason. Having Christ as my reward. We'll close with this little snippet from Revelation 21. I love going back to Revelation. I had someone tell me this week, Pastor Manny, no, why did we stop reading it? Revelation 21, regarding the temple. Let's look at this. Let's read it all together. Revelation 21, 20 through 27. It says this. I did not see a temple in it, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Pause. What's happening here? Last chapter of the Bible. We see the conclusion of humanity. We see God introducing a new universe. We see God bringing a new capital city to a new earth where there's no sin. And He's establishing it as the capital city for all humanity. But something's missing. It says, I did not see a temple there. Why? Because the Lord God and the Lamb, Jesus Christ, are the temple. 23, all together. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, because the glory of God illuminates it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring uh, bring their glory into it. 25, its gates will never close by day, because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. 27, altogether, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Do you belong to Him? If you do, you will have entrance into this kingdom. If you don't, you won't. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will get to enter into this city. And by God's grace, our temple, Jesus Christ, has given us entrance into that city. We'll be there by God's grace. He's our temple. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time that we get to spend together. God, I pray that you would put a new zeal, a new passion in these people, in me, in all of us, for the things of God. Lord, that our faith would not be hypocritical. That we would not live to please other people or for their approval. That instead, God, we might find that you're pleased because of Jesus. And because we trust in your Son, Lord, you're pleased with us. Lord, please help us to walk in holiness. Please help us to turn away from sin that clings to us. Please help us, God, to not be false, two-faced, living a double life. Help us to walk openly in the light where there's nothing to hide. And may we never, ever, Father, take advantage of your grace as a way to go and sin, thinking that you'll just forgive us anyways. Help us have a renewed reverence for you, for your name, And if we need to laugh at something, Lord, let it not be you. Let us never take your name lightly. Because we believe, Lord Jesus, that at your name, every knee will bow 
And every tongue will confess that you are the Lord, the King of kings, the sovereign. Lord, now as we prepare to take of the table of the Lord's Supper, we ask that you would work in us, that you would forgive us of our sins, that you would help us have fellowship with you, that as a church, all together, because we're Christians, those who have put our faith in you, we can sit at your table joyfully and enjoy a meal with you until we enjoy it in the kingdom on the last day.